Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennium Money Medical. My name is Dev Raga, and I'm your host, and I hope all of you had a safe and happy New Year celebrations. And I hope 2023 brings all of you some really great financial success. In this episode, we will discuss the concept of calculating returns. People always talk about how much returns they're getting on their investments, but there are a number of ways of calculating the returns. And I think an investor needs to understand and be aware of the various formulas and ways to calculate it. Because sometimes returns can be calculated in a way which make it sound like a really great investment, but actually the investment is not as great as it seems. Let's get started. Now, if you want to discuss a specific topic or have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. One of the important elements of investing is actually knowing you're getting a return on your money. Remember, the whole point of all this Everything that I talk about is to achieve financial independence. And to do that, you need to achieve a return on your money over a long period of time. And that return should be aligned to your risk profile and hopefully should be positive in nature. That is, the returns are positive in nature and also beat inflation expectations. So let's define what a return is. It's the amount of money you made or lost on your investment. The return can be calculated either as a percentage of profit ratio versus your initial investment, or it can simply be calculated on nominal basis. That is how much the exact dollar amount was. Then you can have returns which are gross, but those that account fees, taxes, and inflation. As you can see, you can calculate returns a number of different ways. So when you see an investment and its calculated returns, you need to pay really close attention to how it's being calculated so you're not duped into believing numbers all the time. This is also true for the term profit. Is it operating profit? Is it net profit? Is it gross profit? Is it inflation-adjusted profit? Is it after taxes? Etc. Etc. You can calculate the return as total returns as well, which includes dividends and distributions. Now, the other subset of return is you need to factor in the holding period of the investment. The holding period is the time you hold the investment. Calculating returns alone without taking into account the holding period is not particularly useful. Usually, this return is calculated as a percentage when compared to the initial investment. And the most important thing here is you need to also factor in the income generated from the investment. Now, this type of return calculation is very useful when comparing asset classes over a specific period of time. And here's the formula. It's the end period value minus the initial value plus any income divided by initial value. Now, to best explain a lot of these concepts, I'm going to be using a lot of examples. 
So in this case, let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy is a paediatrician who buys 100 shares in company ABC stock. Each share is worth $10. So the total investment for her was around $1,000. She holds the stock for two years. The final value of a stock is $15 per share. Therefore, her end period value is $15 per share multiplied by 100 shares, which is around $1,500. But in those two years, she receives dividends or income at 50 cents per share. Her total dividends is therefore $50 per share and over two years is therefore $100. So she will need to factor this into account into a holding period return calculator. And here's the formula. You plug those numbers in, it becomes $1,500 minus $1,000 overall plus $100 divided by $1,000. And that works out to be 60% return on an initial investment, but that's over a two-year period. Now, there's one particular flaw in this returns calculator, and that is it's not annualized. Now, if you wanted to calculate the annualized return for Amy, the formula would then be end value period minus initial value period plus the income, so that bit's the same, divided by initial value period, which will get you the total return. And we've done this before. And in this case, we know the total return is 60% over that holding period. But to calculate the annualized rate of return, you need to use this formula, which is a little bit complicated. That is the total return plus one to the power of one divided by N minus one where N is the holding period. So for our calculation, the holding period is two years. So it'll be something to the power of 0.6 plus one to the power of half minus one, which works out to be around 26% annualized rate of return for Amy. Now notice it's not 30% because her total return is 60% over two years. So the annualized rate of return, I was actually quite surprised to find out, was only 26%. So when calculating returns of various investments, you need to make sure the same time period is then taken into account. So you can't compare returns of investments A over three years, for example, to investment B over five years. So that's called holding period return and annualised rate of return. The other way of calculating returns is nominal return. This is when you calculate the profits or loss of an investment without taking into account any taxes, fees, dividends or inflation. Now, in this example, we do not take into account any distributions, again, any dividends, because it's not counted. This is just the total return. So the nominal return only takes into account the price change. So let's use an example to highlight this principle. Again, Amy is a paediatrician who buys a company ABC stock at a price of $10 per share. She buys 1,000 shares. Her total outlay is $10,000. She holds the stock for a period of five years, At the end of the holding period, company ABC stock, unfortunately, has dropped in value to $6 per share. Her portfolio is now only worth $6,000. Therefore, to calculate her nominal returns, the formula is $6,000 minus $10,000, which is negative $4,000. Now, this is assuming there's no holding costs or any taxes, dividends, distributions from company ABC. It just takes into account the price changes. Nominal return calculations, I think, are not particularly useful for most investors because it's just a number. It doesn't tell you the whole story. For example, in Amy's case, suppose the entire stock market had lost 50% in those five years. Her nominal losses of $4,000 is only 40% over those five years 
that's actually not too bad. So she did better than the market. But if you just do the nominal return, it means she lost $4,000. And $4,000 is a lot of money. So when calculating returns, it's always useful to have a comparison. Otherwise, returns don't really matter too much. Now, the third way of calculating return in its basic format is real return. So what is a real return? This is when inflation and other factors are taken into account. It still uses the nominal returns formula to calculate the real return. But inflation has been the financial concept everyone has been across and learned about in 2022 because it's always, always in the media. So it's really important to factor that in when calculating returns of an investment. You may find after factoring inflation in 2022, your investments have actually gone backwards or have fallen flat. Let's use an example to highlight this principle. Now, at the time of recording this episode in September 2022, and yes, I'm quite ahead in terms of my recordings, the Australian inflation data has come out. So far this year, we've had an annualised inflation figure of around 6.5%. Now, I'm making this kind of number up because Australia does not have really monthly inflation data coming out, which is a bit ridiculous when you think about it compared to most other developed nations. So I've given it a sort of, you know, annualised figure of 6.5%. What would be interesting is by the time you listen to this, which will be in January 2023, by that time we may actually have the real annualised figure. You can hit me up and tell me how accurate I was in terms of annualised inflation. In our previous example, though, we calculated that Amy has an annualised return of 26%. Remember that? That was a previous example for her investment into company ABC stock with a holding period of two years. So the real return according for inflation then is 26% minus 6.5%, which is 19.5% annualised real rate of return. Now, that's actually quite spectacular when you think about it. So well done, Amy. Now, supposing Amy only had a return of 5% annualised return, and if the inflation was 6.5% annualised, then she's actually lost 1.5% of her money in real terms. This then leads to the next principle to understand, which is called purchasing power, which is closely linked to inflation. Now, I've done episodes on inflation, and I've probably talked about purchasing power a little bit. Refer to episode 202, 133, and episode 27. You need to understand inflation as a concept because it's so important. I can't stress this enough when calculating total returns of investment or when analysing investment returns data. Now, what is purchasing power? This is also known as currency's buying power. Essentially, purchasing power represents how much goods and services you can buy using one unit of currency. And over time, the same unit of currency will buy less and less goods and services because money loses value over the long term. Now, that's normal and it's considered healthy for a growing economy. The consumer price index is one measure of purchasing power in the economy. Let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy is a dentist and comes from a family of healthcare workers. She's discussing her current inflation situation and economic state of the world with her grandfather. He mentions to Amy that when he was a dentist back in the day, his yearly income was $100,000. With that income, he was able to afford to buy a house, have a couple of cars, support a family of four as a single income earner. So Amy's grandfather back in the day with that income had a pretty good standard of living. Now let's name him Bob. He had a good amount of purchasing power for his $100,000 per year annual salary. Now, dentists on average nowadays probably make around $150,000 to $350,000 yearly income, sometimes a little bit more, depending on the type and structure of the dental income. 
Essentially, Amy would not be able to maintain the same standard of living that Bob maintained if she earned the same $100,000 today. That is, $100,000, as good as an income as is in 2022, wouldn't travel as far if Amy wanted to maintain the same standard of living as Bob back in the day. Within the concept of purchasing power, then, there is a sub-concept called PPP, Purchasing Power Parity. Now, I've discussed this before. I can't actually remember which episode it was, but I did go into it in detail, but it's probably worthwhile focusing on it for this episode as well. So what is PPP? Essentially, this accounts for countries' currency exchange. It allows comparisons to be made between countries now that we've accounted for the country's currency exchange when it comes to specific goods and services. They basically have a basket of goods and services approach when calculating the PPP. Let's use an example to highlight this concept. Amy is currently visiting the United States. She notices the same shirt she's currently wearing on sale at the local department store in LA. Now, she remembers buying her shirt in Melbourne for $35 Australian. The shirt is advertised for sale in LA for $35 US. So how can we compare the cost of the shirt and account it for parity? Number one step is you convert the 35 US dollars into AUD, which at the time of recording this episode is $52. This is back in September 2022. I know you'll be listening in January 2023. Therefore, the PPP should be $52 divided by 35, which is around 1.5. Actually, it's 1.48. That is, for every $1 spent in Melbourne for a shirt, it would take around $1.48 or $1.50 to get the same shirt in Los Angeles. But there are problems with PPP. And they are, it doesn't take into account transport costs because if raw materials are not available in the local town and need to be transported across the country, this is going to reflect on higher prices for the goods and services. Taxes. Some countries have a VAT, value-added tax or GST. Now, I've done episodes on this before, so refer to that. I answer one of the questions about it. Import and export tariffs, for example, can vary between countries which can raise prices unnaturally. And sometimes PPP doesn't factor in costs associated with utilities, labour costs, which are vastly different across countries. We know labour costs in Australia, you know, are relatively higher than labour costs in the United States because we have a higher minimum wage. Now, sometimes the products are much more expensive in other countries as well because the company maintains a monopoly in that particular market. So those are some of the things that PPP doesn't really take into account. Now that we've addressed some of the basic concepts when it comes to returns and its calculations, let's take a quick break and after that we'll tackle some of the specific returns calculations which you may find useful. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, welcome back. Let's go on to learning about returns and the various ways that they can be calculated. Now, when it comes to returns, we need to learn about returns ratios. And this is getting into really geeky stuff and really interesting stuff. And I think it's relatively important, uh, particularly when you're into financial media and you're learning about returns on investments. Basically, returns ratios are a set of financial ratios that I think you probably should be aware of. And there's around sort of four or five of them, which we'll talk about today. The first one is rate of return. Now, we've already addressed this in the segment before the break, so I won't go into specifics except to calculate then based on an example. So, for example, Amy is a physiotherapist and she buys 10 shares in company ABC and each share is valued at $20 and the holding period is two years. In that time, company ABC pays out, let's say, a dividend dollar per share. And Amy wants to sell the company ABC shares after two years Now, each share is valued at $25. So her cost price was $20, and now each share is valued at $25. So what is her total rate of return? So her total dividends received over two years would have been 20 bucks. The sale proceeds would be $25 per share multiplied by 10. I've kept the numbers relatively simple. So the total sale proceeds would be $250. The cost price would be $20 per share multiplied by 10 shares, which is 200 bucks. You plug the numbers into the calculator and the rate of return over two years is around 35%. Then the answer is Amy realised a rate of return over two years on her investment of company ABC stock of 35%. The next question is we're going to break it down to annualised rate of return. Again, we've discussed this in, uh, in the bits and pieces before the break. So using the same formula and using the annualised rate of return calculator for company ABC stock, in this instance, is 16.18%. So over two years, she, you know, had a return of 35%. Over each year, she had a return of 16.18%. So that's rate of return. The second ratio that we probably need to know about is the internal rate of return. Now, this is when if you have a company and you want to calculate the rate of return on a specific investment or project within the company, it's a bit more complex than a standard rate of return. And it's best explained again by an example. Now, for the internal rate of return to have any meaningful value, we need to also know the company's hurdle rate. So what's the hurdle rate? This is the minimum rate of expected return. So basically, investors will be looking to achieve this rate no matter what. So when calculating internal rate of return, we need to keep the hurdle rate of return in mind. So why would investors, for example, take on more risk if their internal rate of return is going to be less than their hurdle rate or minimum rate of return? Why would a company do that? That would be silly. So let's go back to our example. Amy is the chief financial officer at company XYZ. She receives a proposal from company executives about a brand new investment strategy. This involves buying plants and equipment costing about half a million dollars. Now, the life of that equipment, let's say, is around four years. They estimate that using this new equipment, the added profits will be about $160,000 per year. They plan to sell the equipment in its fifth year because they predict the maintenance and regulatory checks on that piece of equipment just won't be worth it anymore. 
The salvage price after the five years will be around $100,000. The investor's minimum rate of return, that is the hurdle rate, is 8%. They also look at other investments within that initial capital expenditure of half a million dollars and find that those investments will generate a rate of return of 10% per annum. So which option should they take? Should they buy the new equipment and hopefully make more than the hurdle rate? Or should they just look at the other investments which they know will generate a rate of return of 10% per annum? So what they did was they used complex mathematical formulas, which a little bit beyond the scope of this episode, uh, partly because I don't get them as well, um, and they find out the internal rate of return to be around 13%. Now, there's two things here. This is higher than the hurdle rate of 8%, and it's also higher than expected rates of returns in other investments which they would have calculated, which is only 10%. So they sort of say, well, 13% is better than 8%, but 13% is also better than the alternative investments which only net me 10%. So what is internal rate of return useful? It's for companies to make decisions on capital expenditure to select the best investments to make with their money. So using the same amount of money, they want to deploy it in the best possible way and earn the highest rewards. That's what capitalism is all about. There are two main flaws with IRR, internal rate of return. It doesn't take into account various time periods between investments. For example, If a company's hurdle rate is 10%, but investment A over 12 months provides an internal rate of return of 25%, while its investment B over three years provides an internal rate of return of 15% per annum, it doesn't easily tell you which one is better. In this example, it would lead to making an unwise decision to focus on the investment with internal rate of return of 25% per annum over 12 months rather than the one which will eventually lead to more returns, which is 15% per annum over three years. And the other thing is the IRR assumes is all the profits are reinvested into the same investment at the same company. So that's internal rate of return. The third way to look at ratios and returns is return on assets, ROA. This is more specific to companies who want to find out how their profits relate to their assets. The higher the return on assets, the better the company's performance. And the formula for this is essentially return on assets equals the net income, i.e. profit, divided by the average asset value. That is, the average assets depends on the time period. Let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy is the CEO of company ABC, and the primary function of the company is marketing. The total average assets of the company is $50 million, and the total profits of the company before taxes is $10 million. Therefore, the return on assets is $10 million divided by $50 million, which is around 0.2 or 20%. What does that mean? It means for every $1 invested into the company's assets, the return on the dollar is actually 20 cents. So what's the importance of return on assets ratio? It's a figure used to compare the company's performance between various time periods and also other companies of similar size. It's important when comparing companies, you need to keep it within the same industry, otherwise it'll be an unfair comparison. For example, comparing a car company return on assets to an IT company wouldn't be fair because a car company would need a higher amount of assets to generate the same amount of returns as, say, a company which is purely a software company. So that's return on assets. The other type of return that we need to be aware of is return on equity, ROE. Now, this is a ratio where you take the net income, that is before taxes and after expenses, and compare it to the average shareholder equity. That's the denominator. So the shareholder's equity is simply the company's assets minus its liabilities. 
And you know how the return on assets talks about returns on a dollar asset invested. In this case, it's similar in that it talks about returns on a dollar of shareholder equity. Again, if comparing ROE, you need to compare it to similar sized companies in similar industries to have a fair comparison. If a company is able to use its equity to invest it wisely and generate a good return, that means it's doing well. The thing about this equation is it doesn't really take into account risk. For example, if a company borrows a lot of money and then builds on its equity, it appears as though that the equity is natural, but it's not. The company owes money, which is tied to that equity. Therefore, leverage can magnify this equation significantly, and therefore leverage adds an element of risk. And this formula doesn't take that account. The other major drawback of return on equity is when a company does a large share buyback, Essentially, what they're doing is shrinking the total average shareholder equity, and that is less shares circulating for the investors to participate in. And by shrinking the denominator in the equation, the overall return on equity value goes up. But it's a play on numbers. To understand this fully, let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy is a CEO of company ABC. The net annual income for a company is $10 million. The average shareholder equity for a company is $100 million. Therefore, the simple return on equity equation is net income divided by average shareholder equity, in this case is 10 million divided by 100 million, which is 0.1 or 10%. The following year though, company ABC decides to buy back some of the circulating shares. This then reduces the average shareholder equity, thereby shrinking the denominator. Now the average shareholder equity is say $80 million. The new equation then becomes 10 divided by 80, which is 12.5%. Notice now, it looks as if the return on equity has increased by 2.5% and the company is doing even better. All they've done is manipulated the equation by buying back shares. So it appears as though it's increased its return on equity naturally. But the company hasn't done anything spectacular. They haven't done anything different to the business. So if you're really interested, you can go and read on return on equity and see how leverage and average shareholder equity plays a significant role on this ratio. You may wish to also brush up on the concept of two-point formula, which is way too complex for the purposes of this podcast episode. And lastly, return on investment, ROI. In this case, we're comparing the return on investment relative to the cost of the investment. The formula is the gain from the investment minus the cost of the investment divided by the cost of the investment. The aim of this metric is to assess the profitability of the investment. It also allows for an easy comparison. Again, let's use an example to highlight this concept. Amy is a nurse who's looking to invest $100 into a particular investment. Upon analysing various investment options, she comes across two separate investments. Investment A states when she invested her money, she would get a guaranteed cash flow return of $500. Investment B states if she invested her money, she would get a guaranteed cash flow return of $400. Is there a way for Amy to calculate her return on investment? Now, the obvious answer is investment A is the better investment, but we need to objectively quantify this. How can Amy do this? Using the formula for investment A, it's $500 minus $100 divided by $100, which is 400% return on investment. Using the formula for investment B, it's $400 minus $100 divided by $100, which is 300% return on investment. Notice in investment B, she only gets a 300% return, which is pretty good when you think about it. 
although her dollar return is actually $400 in the year. This is because we need to take into account the cost. And similarly, for investment A. Now, the return or investment, or ROI, makes sure you don't only take into account the dollar value return, but take into account the percentage returns. And this is why it's important to understand calculating returns and what ratio funds, uh, you know, ETFs or index funds or companies are using so you totally understand the metrics being used. Now, I want to highlight this principle using another example because I think this is far more telling. Supposing there are two people, Amy and Rachel, they're both nurses, have gone about their investments a different way. Amy has taken the traditional route of investment in the share market using small value figures. Rachel has taken the non-traditional route of investments in commercial property using large value figures. Now, Amy's gains have only been around $500 so far. Rachel's gains so far has been $50,000. So on paper, it appears as though Rachel has absolutely smashed it when it comes to her returns. But this doesn't tell the whole picture. We haven't taken into account the costs. Now, Amy, who went the traditional route with low-value figures, her costs are only $50 to achieve that gain of $500. Rachel's costs, on the other hand, are $40,000 to achieve the gain of $50,000. And using the formula, here is the return on investment for Amy, the you know, index investor or the boring investor that uses low value numbers. Her return on investment is $500 minus $50 divided by $50, which is 900% return on investment. Using the formula for Rachel, for example, here's the return. $50,000 minus $40,000 divided by $40,000, her return is only 25% return on investment. So Amy had a 900% ROI whilst Rachel, using bigger numbers, only achieved 25% ROI. So even though Amy had a smaller value gain, her return on investment was 900%. Whereas even though Rachel had a larger value gain, her return on investment was only 25%. In this case, Amy has conclusively beaten Rachel when it comes to ROI. So in summary, you can see from the various examples we've used so far, There are a number of ways of calculating returns when it comes to your investments. Knowing the basic formulas for calculating returns is vital because that way you can understand what it actually means. And notice that sometimes returns can be manipulated or changed based on the various numerators or denominators. So when presented with an investment opportunity with projected returns or historical returns, be sure to ask how it's calculated. What's the methodology? The bottom line is interrogate returns. Interrogate how it's calculated and know the numbers and know the methodology. That's about it for this episode. Now, remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using, or leave a five-star review on all of the platforms, that's even better, and please leave a positive review. On that note, here's a message that I received from an accountant recently. Hi, Dev, just wanting to say I'm a big fan and I'm an accountant by profession. I advise all of my clients to listen to your podcast channel without fail. It's actually helped my clients and also my business as an accountant. It's driven some more client-focused communications and also ensured that clients are empowered with their personal finances. As an accountant, I can only tell them about accounting and tax matters. I can't 
advise or tell them about personal finance or investing ideas. Now, Dev, you fill this void about empowering people with accurate information. I've listened to this tax series episodes and some of the topics about tax efficiency, and it's remarkably accurate for a doctor talking about money. It's quite refreshing. And to be honest, some of my juniors listen to it as well and are learning from it. The insights into the healthcare industry and just general life advice is refreshing and well accepted. The topics are well researched and current and up to date. And again, a remarkable feat for a healthcare professional talking about money, investing, tax and personal finance in general. Kudos to creating a cult-like following. I really look forward to my Wednesday morning train rides because of your podcasts. Thanks for creating these episodes. And one day, I hope to meet you in person. It'll be my honour. Wow. Thanks very much, Anonymous Accountant. Thanks for listening and promoting the channel. That feedback actually came through my Facebook portal. So I really appreciate you following that. Interestingly, I do have a fair few accountants and financial planners and advisors listening in on a regular basis. Um, And some of them have provided some feedback with the content, which is great because I appreciate their feedback and especially some really constructive feedback as well because I think it's healthy to receive some criticism from the industry folks who literally live and breathe these topics. I mean, I'm not a financial advisor or an accountant or a lawyer or an expert in any of that sort of stuff. But what I am trying to do with these episodes and will continue to do in 2023 is I want to make sure that people have good information to access uh, in a relatively easy way. Now, most of the people that listen to my episodes, uh, they do so um, during drive time, exercise time or gym time. Um, so they're doing other things and they want to use that time effectively and they use these episodes. And I don't really expect people to, you know, listen to it religiously. Um, and if you do, thank you very much for it. But what what tends to happen, and, and, and this happens to me when I listen to episodes of other podcasters is, you know, when I'm listening and I'm driving most of the time, that's when I listen to these episodes, I, you know, pick up a little little gem from the episode. I sort of remember that and I, you know, have some time to research on it and, and, and go and learn about it myself. So, you know, even this particular episode where I talk about calculating returns, even if you, you know, don't understand every single thing about it, you know, you may get a glimpse of return on investment or return on equity or calculating real returns or purchasing power parity, whatever it is. And you may find that interesting and you may go ahead and do some more research on that. And I think that's the principle uh, that I want to instill anyone that's listening as well. Because let's face it, when it comes to investing and personal finance, it's actually not that complicated. And to be honest, I tell people, if you really are interested in my channel, you should probably go back and listen to the first 10 episodes because I think that's probably all you need ever to, you know, master your personal finances. And all this sort of add-on on top of that, you know, all the things that I talk about, about options trading and all that sort of stuff, I, I think that's all just extra. You don't need to do that. And I don't do it. I keep my investments very, very simple. So, to hear that accountants and financial planners are listening in, I think that gives me great pride because I think hopefully what I'm trying to achieve um, to spread the knowledge and consistent knowledge and good quality information is actually working. Now, what's interesting about this particular accountant, and, and look, we, we did sort of have a bit of a chat on Facebook about um, how they felt that it improved their business. So what, what, what happened, and I'll probably uh, share this, and I think it's really important. 
is that what happens when you share information that's freely available is a lot of people think that sharing this information to the consumer, to the client is a bad thing. But it's actually turned out to be a very good thing for this particular accountant because their sort of clients are coming to them and sort of asking them specific questions that they may have learned or asked about um, from one of my episodes. And I think that's great and that empowers their customers to, you know, look after their personal finances. And it's akin for me being a doctor is, you know, part of my job is to treat people with medical conditions. But really, when you think about what a doctor does, you know, we're trying to engage in behavioural change because I want people to not get diabetes and come and see me because, you know, by that time it, it is probably a little bit, you know, too late. I want people not to have a heart attack before they come and see me. I want people you know, not to have a head injury before they come and see me. So maybe wear a helmet when you're skateboarding or riding a bicycle. So it's all about empowering people with the knowledge that they need so that they can live their lives happily, safely, comfortably. And in this case, um, you know, live their financial lives in a peaceful manner. So that's the aim. That's the motto. And that's the mission statement um, of this podcast channel. So I really appreciate the five-star review and also the wonderful message on Facebook. That's it. First episode of 2023 done. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people who get access to the podcast, which is uh, great. So please keep them coming. This is Dev Raga. Happy 2023. And uh, this is My Millennium Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.